there seems to be a strong undercurrent of anti-male devtas, anti-Vaishnav, anti-Shev in the Shakt depictions. Kali standing on Shiva, goddess seated on a chair with four legs on four male deities, etc. But this is not present in the Vaishnav or Shev traditions. Could you explain? Okay. So, uh, first of all, uh, in any of the sampradayas within dharma, whether it is a Vaishnava sampradaya or a Shaiva sampradaya or anything, the primary basic idea, and I suppose most of us are aware of this, is that there is uh, one single deity, uh, one tattva, let's call it deity and a tattva, which is the highest supreme, and everybody else is but a manifestation of that. So if you are looking from a Shaiva point of view, if you read that text, uh, Shiva is the highest, everybody else is but a manifestation from that. If you read the Vaishnava text, it's always Vishnu who is at the top, and then there are other deities who come uh, later on who is a projection from that. So the same concept is even there in Shakta Tantra. There is no uh, there is no harm in this because it's believed that whenever an Upasaka traverses a specific path, he or she must look at uh, his Ishta Devata, whether it's a Devata or a Devi or whichever form, as the supreme, as the ultimate and the absolute form. And everything else is but a projection of that. It is only when you look at it that way that you have a chance of actually progressing. Now, uh, when it comes to the depictions, specific depictions like Kali standing on Shiva or where you have Lalita Tripur Sudhari standing, uh, she's sitting on a, a lotus that emanates from the navel of Shiva and on a throne which is carried by four deities. So these are representations of specific principles in Shakta Tantra. So uh, Kali is an extremely ferocious form of the Divine Mother. It's well known to everybody, but that basic idea we all have. To integrate her upasana and her power into the uh, mind and body of the upasaka, one will need a platform, a base, you call it the adhara, the mind of the body has to be very, very stable. It is that representation which is shown that it is only when she steps on Shiva that she suddenly stops. The tremendous amount of power that she has is there is some amount of control in that power. Otherwise, uh, it's not enough to just worship a deity, you have to progress with the deity. I mean, there is no point to worship Kali if you're scared of her and you can't uh, take the kind of, uh, you know, uh, terrifying power that she uh, personifies. Whereas in the case of uh, Lalita Chikur Sundari, it is the diagram that we see, the picture that we see is a representation of the tattvas in the Shaiva, um, Shaiva system that used to be there of the 36 tattvas, which is first there is Parashakti and then uh, below Parashakti there will be Sadashiva tattva. Mind you, these are not just deities, these are tattvas, which means that they represent a certain state of being which an upasaka can, uh, a tremendous upasaka, I'm saying not an ordinary one, perhaps somebody of the caliber of a rishi or something like that, can experience uh, while being still alive. So there is Sadashiva, below Sadashiva there is uh, Ishvara tattva. Ishvara tattva is basically, you'll see that uh, the throne is carried by Ishvara, then there is Brahma, Vishnu, Rudra. So these are all... Uh, considered, each of them are considered as Ishwaras, they have the power of Ishwara. Now, going more details into that would, uh, you know, entail explaining the 36 tattvas of uh, Kashmiri Shaivism, from which this uh, depiction is taken, basically. So, the idea is, first principle, first thing you have to remember is that every system within Dharma considers their deity as the Supreme. And there is nothing wrong in that, because Vaishnavas do that, Shaivas do that, Shaktas also do that. And um, these two specific uh, depictions are basically representations of how uh, gradations of uh, tattvas, tattvas are basically the creative elements that have formed the universe. The theology, you can call it, or the doc 
or the way in which we the shaktas perceive the world that there is para shakti from there you know uh, it becomes it comes down to sadashiva level from sadashiva there is ishvara beyond ishvara there will be known as the shuddha tattvas which are basically all the mantras that we chant they have a life of their own they are like deities in themselves below the mantras there will be maya and various other things like there are 36 gradations so we take only the first top 5 of those tattvas all of them are very powerful very excellent each of them but there is a slight nuanced difference in them and on the very top of those system of tattvas sits parashakti which is lalita chipursundari so this is represented in the diagram nowadays many traditions don't do the full mantra purush charana for each deity example after ganpati mantra uh, 1 lakh ganpati mantra is done you move on to 3 lakh bal mantra etc etc progressing to shri yantra worship does this give any results or is there reason for this uh i yeah there are many traditions where the full uh, all the limbs of the purush charana of say ganpati is not done uh, i don't think it is that much of a problem uh, because uh, on the first uh, uh, you have to understand that uh, what exactly is the aim of the upasaka in this in this uh, progression if you follow this the worship of ganpati is basically to remove so if you are in the path of uh, worshiping lalita chipur sundari through the method of sri vidya upasana and it is an excellent method a uh, few deities are very important to appease so that your path becomes clearer first it starts with ganapati then there will be uh, of course the blessings of the guru is important then vatuka bhairava is important these things so worship of the ganapati mantra basically allows certain kind of blockages to be removed from your life so that you can progress to the upasana of lalita tripur sundari so this is not exactly a problem the guru can determine sometimes the guru may also say that suppose uh, if in his or her judgment he feels that a certain upasaka needs to complete the full angas of the mantra purush charana of ganapati then he will tell that that you know you finish the japa you do homas etc uh, it does not yes uh, if somebody asks this question that if i just do one lakh japa of ganapati does it uh, give me uh, mantra siddhi of ganapati perhaps not perhaps uh, but then mantra siddhi is a vast topic it's not that easy in any case among all the practitioners perhaps uh, 5 to 10% actually attain to the state where they attain a siddhi of a deity whether it's ganapati or whether it's any form of the chikursundari uh, mantra mantras and their kramas etc so uh, as such i don't see it much of a problem but yes if you if your focus is on ganapati specifically then you will have to complete all the limbs at least you have to do the homas and you have to do the tarpana and uh, including you know Uh, tarpana is extremely important for ganapati and including uh, also feeding people bhojana so only then uh, you have a chance of actually mastering completely the worship of ganapati in the tantric method but that is if ganapati is your final aim sometimes a guru may decide that no this is fine so this i i believe is uh, is a decent enough practice and it should be left to the judgment of the guru to decide What is the difference of a mantra purush charana of Devi for a sadhak and the daily puja? Abhishek says the nama chanting and vrat for her as a bhakt. So this is a this is a very good question because this understanding this explains to you why the tantric path is slightly different from the other paths of Devi upasana. Um, so it is extremely possible to do upasana of, of the goddess uh, through. uh pauranika methods to bhakti through fasting through vratas which we see in north india being done quite extensively during the time of the navratras that is one way there is no harm in that uh, the tantric method is more technically precise so the aim is to be clear 
you enter into the field of tantric vipassana when you want uh, let's be clear the word used is siddhi which basically means accomplishment complete perfection in the mantra when you want complete perfection in the vipassana of the deity so that eventually whenever you use that specific mantra that specific um, whatever uh, sadhana you are doing and sadhana means uh, sadhana of the mantra you are doing a, it's kind of a seva you are doing to the mantra only then you have to follow the full uh, method of purusharana and not just once you may have to do purusharana multiple times because in kali yuga the texts uh, tell you the tantras tell you that because of the vast amount of corruption at least four ta- four number of times purusharana has to be done then what is mentioned in texts which means suppose a mantra is uh, can be finished you know the purusharana account is 1 lakh then you'll have to do at least 4 lakhs in this age and you may have to do it in different places at home once sometimes in your wherever your guru lives in front of your guru sometimes in a cow shed sometimes in a hill sometimes in different places each of the time you do the mantra is purifying yourself purifying removing certain karmas certain blockages that you have in your mind so that a time comes when you attain complete what is known as mantra chaitanya which is absolute your consciousness becomes one with the mantra and then whenever you use that mantra under whatever circumstance whichever place of the world anywhere immediately the potency inside the mantra the shakti encoded in the mantra will start working and some of the other results will follow this is the difference between um, if you worship with normal bhakti and vrata where uh, it, so there is no harm in that only thing is that it is not a guaranteed result uh, it's not a process where you are guaranteed to have a result so it leaves uh, things to the discretion of the deity which is fine if that's your approach the tantric system is slightly different it's more technical it says that no i will continue till the point where there is an absolute union with the deity so that every time i invoke the deity and invoking the deity means invoking the mantra of the deity immediately the deity will come to you either will uh, show some signs or will interact with you in some way or the other and uh, consequently there will be some signs in the external world itself so this is the primary difference between the tantric way of approaching shakti upasana whereas uh, the normal uh, the standard way which we find which is through you know either through bhakti or through fastings vratas or some chanting of shastranamas and things like that can a sadhak shakti be removed or taken away by another of a much higher caliber if so what can be done to prevent this uh yes definitely it can be taken away uh, and there are examples of this we find in fact one of the best examples of this we find in the uh, biography of sri ramakrishna paramahamsa where uh, we find that there was one tantric who was a kali upasak and very very extremely powerful and high caliber tantric so he had come to meet ramakrishna uh, at the temple in dakshineshwar and uh, uh, he had a he used to perform a homa on the palm of his right hand to kali and he had this specific ability siddhi that whenever he used to enter into a debate or shastrartha on any topic he would never ever lose before he starts you there's a specific uh, sound he would make that was sort of an invocation to the deity and then after that it was impossible to defeat him in an argument so he was renowned in that area uh, the text says that the moment he enters into the temple complex ramakrishna was sitting he just looks at him and he Uh, that very specific word the very specific term that he uses to invoke the deity that uh, tantric ramakrishna utters that term very very loudly and immediately he sees that uh, upasaka sees that uh, he has lost his voice so he is not able to speak even uh, basically what has happened is whatever power he had was drawn out by ramakrishna and taken into within himself 
this was possible because ramakrishna was a much high caliber upasaka then eventually that uh, person comes back to ramakrishna and then you know takes sanyas and says that he wants to leave society and do more sadhana ramakrishna says go ahead so it is definitely possible to take away the shakti of an individual uh, by somebody who is obviously has a higher power high, sufficient there has to be a sufficient amount of uh, sort of for lack of better words a gap between the amount of shakti that somebody has and the person who is taking it away there is always some consequence to this of course because nobody likes to give shakti on their own it's like you're forcibly taking it off there will be something a karmic consequence for example perhaps in some lifetime in this example uh, somebody of the caliber of ramakrishna he may again help that individual out with uh, giving back some amount of shakti in some lifetime this is a balance that will happen uh, to prevent that on the other hand there are certain cases when one may forcibly take away some power some shakti from an individual through negative means that is also possible for, for you know uh, that actually unfortunately happens quite often so in order to protect oneself there are various methods various sadhanas specifics i won't go into the details of that but if you have a good guru he or she can guide you into what needs to be done uh, but it's definitely possible how does one know one is progressing in sadhana or even on the right track for them uh this is so this is a broad question because it depends on what sadhana you are doing so i am uh, considering in this uh, you know pertaining to this the topic i'll only deal with uh, mantra sadhana and that which involves tantric upasana etc i will not go into the yogic sadhana and other things so if you are doing hatha yoga or kriya yoga that's a different mechanism for that uh, i won't go into that because the topic does not pertain to that so if you are doing mantra sadhana the simplest way to find out if you are actually progressing is that how keenly do you look forward to the time when you can sit for japa again does it cause a sensation inside you is there something uh, whether you can define it properly or not you'll feel a tremendous amount of love for what you are doing it's like throughout the day you'll keep waiting that when can i again sit back and start the japa and there will be certain inner experiences a certain state of um, happiness let's call it that way or something not always happiness there are some mantras of deities that may give you a sense of power that may give you a sense of detachment that may cause certain experiences etc either way the bottom line is that if your mantra sadhana is working you look forward to it it will not look like a drag there are people who keep doing lot of sadhanas but it's more like you know they sit and Uh, it's as if somebody has given them a punishment that you know i have to complete ek ghanta baithna hai fir jana if that's the attitude then it's not working anyway then uh, i mean even then you can progress it will take a lot of time but the key the key sign of progress in using mantras and things like that is that you look forward to it and you do not have to make an extra effort to be disciplined it's not like you are in school and class and your teacher is saying uh, you should be uh, you know silently following all the rules and why are you not concentrating etc apne aap se aayega it will come from within you that okay i i need to sit down every day because i feel good about it something is it something is there that is pulling you throughout the day whatever you might be doing you may be in office or you may be doing something else but back of your mind there's something that um, you know it's like you wait for the time when can you again sit so if that is happening at the initial stages at least then you know that whatever you're doing is on the right track and keep carrying on with it eventually it and again when i say eventually it doesn't mean 10 days 15 days sometimes in fact the ideal state in my opinion is if you pick up a practice and it's working for you you need to continue it for 3 to 4 years before it shows some serious development because uh, these things are not easy 
and people spend decades and decades practicing in fact lifetimes before uh, you can go into high states so like that so can you please elaborate on amnaya systems of shaktism and their devis like kubijka and tripura etc what is amnaya actually as we were discussing last time also so the basic idea is that all the mantras that are there present in the universe that have been given then there are seven crore mantras each one of them have come out from one of the faces of lord shiva so shiva is some shiva has five different faces four horizontal faces east west north south and one on top which is uh, looks upward so these faces each of them uh, from each of them emanates a certain kind of vidya a certain kind of knowledge a certain mantra mantra means the deity and along with the mantra there is the process of upasana of that mantra how you should approach the deity etc etc so each of these are known as the amnyas from each of these there is one set of tantras that have come out so uh, at the initial stages uh, perhaps when um, during the time when kashmiri shaivism was at speak then each of the amnyas had um, for example in the southern face of shiva the aghora face there is to be the amnya from which bhairava tantras came out Uh, things like that etc so this system was also adopted in the pure shakta systems that came in after about 10th 11th century where it's believed that uh, there is shiva and there are the five amnyas through which there are five emanations of mantras that are coming out and uh, the four horizontal ones and the one on the top which is known as the urdhamna the one on top and beyond that also there is one more amnya there are some sampradayas which uh, which give initiation to that it's known as the anuttaramna the anuttara means that which cannot be surpassed so that face of shiva is not visible it's like a face that is made of very subtle light and there is also another amna which is known as the adho amna which is again not visible but a face of shiva that looks downward and each of these have a certain class of mantras for example the adho amna has uh, mantras which uh, which may pertain to spirits which may pertain to other things lower category of beings than deities uh, whereas the urdhamna de mantras are of a different nature so you go into upasana of the urdhamna mantras only when you have attained to a certain degree of uh, detachment and certain progress in the sadhana and another way of looking at amnaya is that suppose you are worshiping kali so each of the amnayas will have some mantras of kali that were revealed by shiva and each of these have their own processes through which you approach kali upasana so what a guru does is that he may he or she may teach you because in tantra uh, women can be gurus there's no problem in that we have historical evidence and even today there are uh, yeah. so uh, if you are approaching kali the guru may teach you okay you let's start with purvamna mantras of kali once you attain to certain degree of proficiency the guru may say okay let's go to uttaramna mantras like this so you can approach the deity through multiple amnas and then there is the urdhamna which is the higher category of mantra of kali and the deity and the guru may tell you okay this specific mantra is an urdhamna mantra urdhamna mantras when you start doing upasana then you have to be uh, careful because those are highly spiritual mantras you cannot expect material results from them so you have to be very detached they suppose you have your consciousness as of a lot of Uh, material expectations and you start doing an udhamna mantra on your own then it may cause certain disturbances in your life so that is why there are these categorizations done in the systems and um, there are specific amnya dikshas that are given which are which comes at a much uh, later stage at least in the kalikula uh, amnya dikshas are pretty uh, end of the line for tantric progression so 
this is the concept of the omnias so basically you are trying to approach the deity the deity is say, sitting inside and there are there are different doors you can enter through each of the omnias and you reach the same deity but each door has a different set of mantras a different set of procedures and accordingly there will be a different set of uh, experiences that you may have and then eventually there is the uddhamna which is the more spiritual phase and beyond the uddhamna there is the anuttaramna which is absolutely when the consciousness of the upasaka has become non dual with the deity which means that he is as good as he has become kali himself in a sadhana then you go into the anuttaramna uh, systems and all that so this is basically the idea of the abhyas and um, uh, the deities that he mentioned sukubjika tripursundari so these are primary deities of amnas uh, while i gave the example of kali it can be for any deity uh, whereas uh, say for kubjika for example she is known as the uh, supreme deity of the paschimamna so paschimamna there are a set of mantras set of upasanas that are given by shiva and yes, some pradayas sometimes have slightly differences slight differences in the way they understand the system the corpus of mantras that uh, are uh, pertaining to each amna so in the paschim amna system the chief deity is kubjika along with that there will be many auxiliary mantras many auxiliary forms so this is how the amna system works it tantra what are your views on the kinaram baba sant parampara okay so uh, that is one of the most authentic uh, augar sampradayas present in india today perhaps Uh, i don't know whether there are any other sampradaya as good as that as authentic maybe there are i'm not aware but that is definitely one of the best uh, augar sampradayas but you have to understand that uh, while uh, what is known as augar uh, or aghorias or things like that that is an extreme form that is one specific form of uh, practice and uh, they have their own systems of upasana etc etc it is perhaps one may look at it the kapalika component of the upasana is more higher in their systems than in the pure tantric systems so there is slight technical difference but otherwise uh, since the question pertains to whether the kinaram ashram is authentic it's absolutely one of the best in india they have produced let's put it this way they have produced a streamline of fantastic siddhas and they still keep producing that so there is no question about the caliber of people associated with that sampradaya or the gurus that have come up in that sampradaya so it's one of the most respected across north india What are the prerequisites before starting tantra sadhana, and what kind of person would be the ideal candidate? Uh, that depends on first. The only prerequisite, in my view, is that you must have a desire for it. If it attracts you, if you feel that okay, this is this is perhaps the right path for me, uh, then some of the other form of tantric upasana can definitely be done. It's not necessary that remember that just because somebody enters into the field of tantra he will have mastered every single tantric mantra and process and deity no it doesn't work that way that is why the guru can customize while there are broad methods in which you progress there are certain customizations which the guru can give and tell that okay for this person this specific uh, method of upasana is more suitable for uh, that person that deity is more suitable like that so by and large there is something for everybody in tantra but you enter into this field only when you are uh you do not have inhibitions and you feel an attraction for it because uh, if you are into a kola sampradaya or if you are into a kali kula sampradaya definitely after the purnavishik diksha and other things you will have uh, elements in upasana which are completely heterodox which are different from the standard conception of upasana that we have so you can offer alcohol to deities you can offer meat to deities or you can offer anukalpas which are substitutes for these but remember the reason why a substitute is used is because tantra accepts that there are certain specific ingredients which 
uh, when uh, passed through a certain ritual process and offered to a deity, then they become acceptable to the deity. So if you have any visions about this right at the beginning, then obviously Tantra is perhaps not your path. Or maybe you can, you know, remain, uh, you can confine yourself to what those sampradayas which are entirely into the Dakshinachara method of Tantra, which is present today, uh, where these things are not involved. But either way, Tantra is, you have to, you, have, you must have a desire for it. Number two, you must, there's a technical precision in the path. So that is important. It's not necessarily that uh, I just have bhakti on the deity, you have to follow the process in which the guru tells you and you have to do the sadhana like that. Only then you have a scope of progressing in this path. Additionally, if there are people who are more, uh, you know, uh, how do I put it? A certain lesser degree, and I'm specific, specifically talking about Kalikula Upasana specifically, which uh, the Virachara Sadhanas and all that that come in later on. A little lack of fear and things like that are helpful eventually. Let's just put it that way. You know, some degree of control, uh, some uh, a more goal-oriented way of doing sadhana. If that is what you like, then perhaps Tantra is more suited. And apart from that, even from Jyotish, one can, uh, if you look at the horoscope of an individual, you can get a fair idea that whether he or she can progress in the Tantric Upasana methods or whether the Vedic systems of sadhana are more suitable for the individual. So that way. Can we have any of the Mahavidyas as our Ishta Devtas or Devis? Oh, absolutely. There are so many people in the Tantric path who have uh, the Mahavidyas as the Ishta Devata. There is no problem in that. But Ishta Devata, you have to understand, you truly understand your Ishta Devata when you have a complete experience of the deity. Otherwise, it's just a mental idea that, okay, I like this deity. It's it's the same thing as somebody saying that I like that film star. The film star doesn't know whether you do exist or not. So only this thing, this process works when there's a two-way communication. And in order to build the two-way communication, you have to go through an intense process of Upasana. So that is where uh, this clarity must be there, that uh, the Ishtadevata really works. Just the concept of Ishtadevata will, will become a living reality only when you pass through the process of Sadhana. There is a belief in many people that after you choose Tantra as your spiritual path, you won't get moksha and you'll keep wandering in this world. How true is this? Uh, this is complete nonsense. Uh, I mean, and you don't have to even quote scriptures for this. Uh, some of the people who have gone to the highest levels of Tantri Gupasana, for example, uh, you know, if we look at Bengal, uh, Siddhas like Bama Kappa, who was considered as a Tara Upasana of highest caliber, so high that uh, people from all over used to come and you know ask uh, guide, spiritual guidance or other things. Somebody like Ramakrishna Paramahamsa actually performed all the 64 Tantri Gupasanas under a guru, a female guru, Bhairavi Brahman, and uh, attained to the success of this sadhanas. There are innumerable examples of great siddhas and powerful men and women who have used this path to attain to the highest states of spirituality. So the question of uh, you will not attain uh, moksha, this is uh, absolute nonsense. You will attain to very high states of spirituality. In fact, there are gradations of the high states. Uh, depends on the caliber of the upasaka, how long it takes and things like that. So that is obviously uh, completely a wrong notion. It is said that Tantra is a secret and it should not be talked about in public. In today's world, when people are just limited to symbolism and don't really go deeper to get real benefits of the practices, don't you think Tantra should be more talked about so that more people from our side get into Shakta Parampara and gain benefit which can be of help to us and to the society as a whole? 
I agree with this idea completely. So by and large, for many centuries, Tantra was practiced with the key idea of secrecy. Because uh, And uh, I understand the necessity of secrecy. In fact, anybody will understand the necessity of secrecy once you start doing uh, proper upasana. Because there are certain things, if you reveal them, uh, your sadhana takes a hit. So you will fall a little bit because of uh, not keeping certain things secret. And, and I'm not talking about the esoteric, the heterodox elements. I'm saying even a thing as simple as the mantra you are chanting. If it has attained to some degree of power and you make it public, immediately the power will leave. You will feel it the very next day that your mantra is not working anymore as it used to work if you open up and tell people. That being said, there are certain other aspects of Tantra which I think it's time to explain to people uh, remove the misconceptions and tell them that this is a fantastic path that works. And uh, if we go by the dictums that Lord Shiva gives in the tantras, then he, in fact, sort of says that as Kali Yuga progresses, tantra will perhaps be the most prolific, the most extensive method of upasana that people will follow because it is absolutely suited for this age. That is why the revelation was given that uh, in this age, people by and large are unfit to follow the poor Vedic methods of sadhana because there is a huge amount of corruption of the gunas and things like that. That is why the tantric methods were given, which takes the same spiritual aim but reformulates it through new ritual language, new way of approaching the deities. That's what it is. And uh, the other problem is that in the last at least 20-30 years I've seen, uh, because the texts are more widely available, unlike say 100 years ago when very few people used to have actually texts with them, and uh, so there are a lot of people who are sort of uh, scholars or whatever you call them. They'll just read the text and then on their own, they'll formulate some ideas and things like that, which may or may not be correct at all, which is not the way that the Upasaka looks at the text. Upasaka understands the meaning of the text. And then they go into creating their own sort of new mythology about Tantra. And they find it exciting to bring out certain aspects, which uh, basically confirms their own biases rather than a clear uh, uh, objective understanding of why those processes were included. So perhaps it is time to at least some aspects of the Tantra may not be, uh, there are say 20, 25-30% to 30%, which should only be learned from a good guru and should not be uh, read randomly or discussed with any random person because you will very likely misunderstand them unless your body and mind has attained to a certain level. But there are many other aspects of Tantra which can definitely be talked about in public and perhaps it should be because otherwise our systems will be uh, taken over by people who have only a passing interest, who are more uh, interested in judging these systems than actually using it for the intended purpose in, for which it was given. If one were to take a year to prepare oneself before approaching a guru to seek initiation into the Shakta path, which of the uh, following Mahavidyas is ideal to approach for a beginner? And what would be the best way to prepare during this one year? Okay, first of all, uh, when we say uh, Mahavidya, if you have, if there is a Mahavidya that you really like, suppose, uh, for some reason you like Kali or you like Chupur Sundari, and uh, many, are, on an average, other people, I have seen most of them, uh, most people generally like Kali, Tara or Chupur Sundari. These are the three most prominent. The other deities are only perhaps if somebody had introduced you to those deities, then you will like the other Mahavidyas by and large. So before you approach a guru, proper upasana for Mahavidya only you can learn after your guru tells you. You cannot learn on your own. That is, there are methods, there are uh, you know processes, then you have to do certain sadhanas and things like that. But 
as i had mentioned last time there is no bar to actually reciting the names of a deity if you think that you can handle your you know worship of kali is appropriate for you and there is no problem with that and i say that because i know at least one specific case where somebody had um, suggested kali upasana to a lady uh, who was uh, very mild natured and perhaps it was not the right deity and quite easily she got scared after some experiences happened so if those are basic understanding basic judgments that each individual can make on their own uh, suppose you you feel that oh, you are accustomed to a certain degree of familiarity with the idea of kali and you really like her then you can pick up the 108 names of ashtottara nama and keep doing that sufficiently sufficient means not just doing it once you should spend at least 45 minutes to an hour daily with that with devotion nothing else no complications no mantra chanting nothing along with that there are certain basic uh, stotra shlokas related to the idea concept of a guru tattva if you keep doing that and you have some patience that is very likely that you will be introduced to somebody or the other who can take you higher in the path of uh, kali upasana but which specific mahavidya it is not one or you know this or that it depends on the individual you cannot make a thumb rule that only you know you should start with this mahavidya that mahavidya if there is somebody who likes tipu sundari then perhaps you can approach uh, people who are more knowledgeable and find out certain ashtottara namas not the uh not the main one but there are certain some processes some stotras etc related to lalita chatursundari and keep chanting that along with you do uh, you know chanting of the basic uh, basic shlokas with respect to the concept of the guru the guru tattva and spend some time keep doing this upasana at least for a year year and a half because remember that there is another factor for progress that is time when your time is right only then you get the things but that doesn't mean that you do not practice before that because if you do not practice then even if the time is right you may still miss the opportunity so like that how to prepare adhara to retain digest the shakti generated during <coughs> this is basically again this is something that ideally the guru should tell the individual because each individual has its own his or her own uh, mind and body uh, you know uh, mental makeup and uh, physical features etc those uh, if, a, if a guru is really competent he can he or she can just look at an individual once and figure out that what are the areas where uh, you know this individual will progress certain aspects of sadhana he or she can progress faster in certain aspects where he or she will have difficulty so accordingly uh, practice can be tailored for the individual that if you do this if you follow this then there's a high chance that you will progress and about mm, retaining uh, retaining shakti inside the body and mind the first principle is discipline that you have to follow whatever you're doing do it in as disciplined and manner as possible and once you start experiencing you have to also ensure that the circle of people you surround yourself with you discuss you Uh, move about with that changes to a circle that is more conducive for your sadhana so basic understanding you have to basic thing you have to understand that the moment a new power new shakti is infused into your mind and body through the upasana of the mantras that you are doing it is going to cause certain changes so the patterns that you had the people you moved around with your friend circle and things like that that will always get disrupted if there is no change that is happening in your life in spite of doing a lot of sadhana that means your mantra is still not activated properly because if you were already perfect assuming mantra is like a rope uh, it's going to pull you up rope that you hang on to 
and the rope by itself keeps pulling you up into the higher states of uh, upasana so the moment your energy level changes to a more subtle state then what was happening beforehand with you the circles you were moving around the things you like that is automatically bound to change that is like a given it will happen definitely happen whether it happens on day 1 or whether after 20 years of upasana that depends on the individual once that happens then there is a natural reconfiguration of your life that will happen so basic idea is that as you keep doing sadhana you'll see that there are people who will fall off from this circle there there may be new people who you'll find as more conducive etc so these are things that are being sort of to put it that way orchestrated by the power of the sadhana that you're doing whether you consciously understand it or not so in that case these things actually are aligned in a way so that you can attain more of retain more of the shakti inside your mind and body so that you go higher retaining shakti is a very difficult thing because mistakes are very easy to make slightest mistake and everything that you do is going to go down again and you have to start again building up the power so whom you speak to whom you hang out with what kind of discipline you follow those things all add up little by little to help you attain and gather you know retain the amount of uh, shakti that is needed to move up to the higher notches of sadhana Uh, can non initiates worship ugra forms of devi like kali bhairavi using ashtotharas and stotams yes definitely there is no problem but before that it is good to at least ask somebody because don't just start a ugra form of a deity uh, say something which is not common and suppose you pick up the ashtotara nama of somebody some form like uh, chinnamasta and keep doing it very aggressively there is some effect that will start question is are you able will you be able to handle it or not so in order that uh, you get the right guidance even if you don't have an initiation it is always good to speak to somebody who is who is more knowledgeable and if that uh, individual thinks that okay it's fine for you you can there is by by default reading stotras etc do not require initiation per se but still it is advisable that at least speak to somebody because suddenly you start something very offbeat like this and you intensify your sadhana uh, you may get certain effects then how are you going to handle those effects those are important things what are your thoughts on aghor tantra shamshan upasana munda sadhana uh so aghora is a specific path that has overlap technically speaking overlaps a lot with uh, tantric uh, upasana and then there are other methods and things they use which is more specific to sampradaya so aghora by itself you cannot say at least that's what i found you cannot say that there is xyz these scriptures where every detail of sadhana is mentioned the tantras definitely the tantric paths definitely have full documentation of all the methods that are followed so this you do this sadhana you do this amount of homa etc so aghora by itself takes bit from there and then there are various uh, how do i put it organic uh, methods of sadhana that were evolved in the sampradayas which are passed down from guru to shishya which may or may not have a clear recording in texts so aghora there is an overlap but it is slightly different also on the other hand in the tantric system specifically in kalikula upasana there is the stage which is known as the virachara virachara is the stage where you Uh, suppose uh, somebody who is capable the guru will ask that individual to perform certain sadhanas that involves elements of cremation ground even uh, you know ritually sanctified skulls are used and things like that so there is nothing wrong in it it's if it's capable if somebody is capable and the guru thinks that he can do it 
So you'll do it. There are there are many people even today who do those sadhanas. But remember that uh, these are also very risky. These sadhanas. So do not just randomly, uh, you know, you chant some mantras for a few years and think of yourself as somebody very super great and on your own you start going here and there and doing these things you are very likely to fall into trouble because the moment you enter into a cremation ground and those processes those any element related to cremation ground has its own peculiar energy which is very very fast very intense equally dangerous so even if you enter into those zones without knowing exactly what you're doing how to protect yourself uh, on what uh, you know what are the various um, various things elements involved in this how to handle those which are the kind of deities you can worship and before you go into the worship what are the other prerequisites if those are not set into place you are very likely to get into trouble because the cremation ground route is 100 percent problematic for somebody who does not know what he's doing there is no no um, no second opinion about it i mean you may or may not finally get to see kali but suppose tomorrow you just end up in a cremation ground for 10 15 days and doing whatever you think, even with your bhakti also you sit down, some effect will come and most likely it will be an effect you will be unlikely to be able to handle properly. So that is why there are these checks and balances. Only when a certain level of diksha is attained, the guru then tells you the processes, teaches you and if the guru thinks that you are fit to do that upasana, then the guru will tell you, okay, now you go, you have to do this, these are the mantras you have to do beforehand, this is the kind of day on which you have to go, these are the specific ingredients you need for this sadhana. This is how you will know that the sadhana is working. All various things are there. It's not something you can just randomly, like, you know, wake up one morning and feel that uh, just go there and do it. No. The difference is when you're doing a sadhana at home, suppose if you make a mistake, you can still recover from it. In the cremation ground setting, you make a mistake, you will end up in a very, very bad shape, which from which you yourself can never recover. You'll need somebody else to help you out, if at all you find a person like that. So. On the other hand, if it is correctly done, if it is rightly guided, then it gives a fantastic boost to the sadhana. A certain deity specifically who have links to cremation grounds like Kali, etc., for example, definitely those sadhanas will work very fast, the, assuming that the right individual is doing it. Dear sir, the question is related to the ritual of Bali, sacrifice of animals to Kali, and its significance in Shakti Tantra. I asked his question also highlighting Sia Sri Aurobindo's conversation with Nirod Bharan on the topic of sacrifice of animals to Kali, where I quote the exchange below. Um, Nirod Bharan, what about the sacrifice of harmless animals to Kali? Sri Aurobindo says, useless and therefore inadvisable. External sacrifices of this kind have no longer any meaning, as so many saints have said. Sacrifice ego, anger, lust, etc. to Kali, not goats or cocks. As someone interested in the truth in the subject, with humility I seek to know how one must view the subject and I find it confusing when people like yourself show support to the sacrifice of animals whereas Sri Aurobindo says it's useless. I absolutely agree that when it comes to allowing one's religion the right but snatching the right of another religion, uh, another being is logically flawed. But here I move past the Hindu-Muslim angle and ask a more fundamental question. Would Mark Ali like it more if I sacrifice my greed, lust, anger, or would a sliced head of a, a hen or a cock or a goat please her more? This is by Kamini K. Okay. Uh, the first, before I start answering, this is a question that comes up hundreds of times. Same topic. Uh, before I start answering, let me say that I hold Sri Aurobindo in very high regards. 
there is there have been very few philosophers and writers and spiritual beings of his caliber there's no doubt about that having said that let me also make it clear that sri aurobindo was not doing tantric vipassana his method of sadhana was entirely different he used to sit for hours uh, perhaps in one text i was reading sometimes 7 8 hours of sadhana uh, not sadhana meditative sadhana and he has various his integral yoga is there's different paths likely so if you are approaching a deity through that path you do not need to do any of these things why sacrifice you don't need to do uh, elaborate rituals of a deity you don't need a yantra of a deity sri aurobindo never used a yantra Sri Aurobindo never used, to the best of my knowledge, any uh, mala to do a japa of a deity. His path was different. His path is valid in his domain, uh, with due respect. And he was a great, great seer. Number point number one. Point number two is that uh, these paths, the way Sri Aurobindo approached uh, when he was worshiping any deity, for example, when he was worshiping even Kali, uh, for that matter, it would be more a meditative experience and getting an inner experience of the deity. which is and then after the inner experience matures to a certain point then that power becomes accessible to an individual to some degree this suppose he is very high up in his uh, method of sadhana the tantric approach to upasana is entirely different let's this i this was what i told that sri aurobindo used to do now let's come to the tantric way of sadhana which is entirely entirely different as i mentioned in another question that if you are doing uh, upasana based on bhakti for example of the deity of kali say there are certain forms of kali that can be worshiped at home worshiped with entire uh, with with how do i put it in the bhakti mode of sadhana you can do fasting vratas and all that and across north india we see that during navratras uh, most of the time what people do is they'll fast and then they'll chant some stotras or this or that etc few things and then they'll feed um, uh, young girls and things basic idea they have so that is the loukika way the puranika way of doing sadhana let's put it this way whereas the tantric way is very precise very technical way of doing sadhana it is not enough that i have devotion for the deity it is important equally that i if you are following the tantric way that i do it exactly as mentioned in texts because this is what has given results and this is what has been revealed by shiva in the texts so if you have to approach this deity then you have to do this mantra you have to do it this number of times you have to sit on that day and if it is supposed to be 1000 chant of the mantra then you have to do it 1000 you cannot do 999 nor can you do 1001 both of these will not result in the uh, give you the result that you are looking for so precision is the very heart of tantra sadhana first thing number two i think the person who question put the question said that won't uh, the deity be more pleased if i sacrifice my ego lust and all that uh, what will the deity do with you sacrificing your ego lust matlab even if you keep it or you sacrifice it how does it make the deity happy or unhappy matlab unke sath tumhara kya sambandh hai you to you sacrifice see this is the fundamental misunderstanding that you have when a path of sadhana and even tantra sadhana also tells you that you have to go beyond the ashtapashas eight chains that bind the consciousness and the shutter repos six uh, repos or uh, you know flaws that you have you are not doing it for the deity do not make this mistake that you are doing it so the deity is going to be very happy and come down and put a garland on your shoulder you know on your head nothing at all you are doing it only for yourself you are doing it because it will help you access the deity faster not because the deity has asked you deity likes to he or she doesn't really care not until you have attained to a state where you can communicate with the deity remember that analogy we have uh, i gave you in another example that uh, somebody likes a film star keeps writing letters puts up posters achhi baat hai film star doesn't even know you exist 
So you have to attain to a stature where you, where when you mention the name of the film star, say you put up a tweet or a post, the film star says, "Oh, this person he is very famous. उसने कुछ लिखा है तो जरूर कुछ होगा. May even call you up and see what what's going on, things like that. So your presence is acknowledged by the deity only when you have been able to lift yourself to that stature. Unless you are able to lift yourself to that stature, your uh, this concept that there is the huge deity and all benign and all kind." to you and always looking down it is not entirely true that's more of a monotheistic conception of deity that there is one god and he is always kind and is looking up there are here each deity is capable of taking you to a tremendous experience and so on but each, each deity has his or her own nature own specific uh, tendencies what he or she likes etc so keeping that in mind the methods of sadhana were designed so that is why to shiva we offer bell leaves we don't offer tulsi to shiva whereas to krishna we offer tulsi because krishna likes that i'm giving a basic example so there are certain forms of goddesses certain forms of shaktis for whom bali works very well. there is absolutely no denying it i mean whether somebody likes it or dislikes it is different matter but there is no question about it and this is mentioned in scriptures this has been experienced by siddhas and upasakas beforehand also not all forms but some forms yes there is no doubt about that and in fact the kalika puran uh, which is one of the most powerful shakta it's actually a shakta tantric text but though it's named as kalika puran it has a fantastic uh, it has a chapter full chapter it's called the rudhira rudhira adhyaya which is the blood episodes if you translate it okay so this gives entire details about how the bali process has to be given to which deity of the kali kula krama and what happens if you do the bali and how it is to be done there are uh, tremendous details for example even before bali the very kharga through which bali has to be given has to be worshiped infused with mantras uh, the pashu whose bali has to be given has to be worshiped various things and specific tithis and um, it's a full ritual in itself now importance of bali is so high that it mentions that there are alternatives to giving pashubali there are you can give bali of sugarcane you can give bali of certain kinds of vegetables but only those things so again as i mentioned everything is very precise in tantra so you cannot just pick up an apple and say i'm giving a bali of an apple it will not work the ritual will not work instead of an apple there is a specific say a sugarcane bali is given to certain forms of the mother there are certain there is specific vegetable i, I don't know what it's called in english uh, in bengali we call it chalkumbu uh, that specific vegetable is given as a bali to the mother so those uh, precisely those things can be offered and those things are the only ones to be offered either whether you are giving a pashu bali or whether you are giving a vegetarian bali bali is necessary in the tantric krama of upasana because the moment the bali is given at that time with the right mantra it causes a tremendous upsurge of power upsurge of shakti inside in the environment and along with that in the upasaka and if we follow the if we follow the uh, the logic that is given in the shastras the dictum that is given in the shastras and by the way in here there is a uh, similarity between what the tantric texts mention and some of the older vedic texts that uh, while uh, ahimsa is a thing that is very good in general in life uh, pashubali that happens in the process of a yagya is not to be considered as himsa because the animal is the deity itself ensures that the animal gets a higher rebirth if it is correctly done if the process is correctly done so these are things that are actually mentioned in texts my uh, point is that if you are doing a tantric upasana 
whether you are giving a whether you want a, there are certain rituals for example whether you don't you don't want to give a pashubali fine but you'll still have to give a bali that is vegetarian so the first question you have to ask is that why at all is bali so important even what is the big thing about giving bali of a chalkumbra or a sugarcane why is it necessary what happens if i don't give the bali until you understand that you will never understand why pashubali is important and then you will realize that there are the necessity for pashubali in certain cases is because when shakti has to be projected outside that is when you have to give a sacrifice of a pashu whereas shakti has to be internalized into some other processes that is when you need to give a sacrifice of something that is vegetarian for example uh, sacrifice of a sugarcane or things like that again these are specific so uh, as i repeat keep repeating over the course of this talk that you cannot randomly pick up something and just give a bali that will not work so overall in the tantric path in certain specific kinds of tantra specifically bali is absolutely mandatory there is no question about it anybody who feels disturbed by bali should first ask oneself genuinely that why is bali a vegetarian items also mandated in the tantras i mean uh, it's not about that you know uh, fine you don't want to give a pashu bali you give a bali of a vegetarian specific ingredient that is given so until you understand the necessity of the bali you will never understand the question of why pashubali or why even sugarcane bali secondary and this you will understand when you experience it and so that is why our systems are like this the shastras tell you that this is the way to go people have followed that way and they have attained to high state so we also follow that way this is the basic format you do not innovate into that because you do not have the capacity to innovate you don't even know you are when you enter the path you are at class 1 Uh, so how will you know that the class 12 syllabus is correct or not that is only somebody who has passed the exam can tell you right so like that so sri aurobindo is right in his way in his integral sadhana you know, uh, yoga and other yogic paths etc when it comes to the tantric path this is how it is to be done is pashubali mandatory so i want to ask that uh, the the second part is is there any mark within shakti tantra where one can skip substitute only matsya and mans that require killing and still retain the remaining so in the panchamakara there are we do have evidences of uh, purva upasakas of very high caliber who uh, on being allowed by the guru would uh, skip one of the other of the makaras or substitute them with an anukalpa anukalpa is a substitute whether again specific substitutes are used it cannot be anything random uh, say in some sampradayas for example instead of um, alcohol if you have to substitute that uh, ritualized alcohol instead of that you use coconut water or use water that is Uh, mixed with gourd and kept uh, for some time so things like that there are other substitutes also it depends on the sampradaya again they have some uh, links to some of the texts which mention these substitutes so uh, definitely it's possible but for that you have to speak to your guru if the guru allows you you can do that from shakti tantra point of view what is enlightenment and is it the same thing as in yoga karma stops acting on the person attainment of first samadhi perfect stillness thoughtlessness in mind recalling earlier lifetimes the right to become guru to other yogis freedom from compulsion to be born again after death uh, ability to see karmic lines between people or is it something else this is all this and much more than that so all this that has been mentioned instead of making it a piecemeal manner that okay i attain some this power and i am a guru to x y z and this and that 
etc in one line you can mention that the moment you the upasaka attains to a state where the deity is worshiping the divine mother actually accepts him and starts working through his mind and body all these things will be taken care of automatically and something more will be given so you not only want moksha after death that you go to a very high state you want to become a free absolutely free individual uh, when still being alive and that can happen when there is a, a perfect communion between the upasaka and the deity which happens at the very high state so that time you do not you live among people but you live like a god among people this is the final aim of the sadhana and yes your karmic lines whatever your baggages that you carry those obviously have to be finished off only then you will be able to reach that stage and the way the why the reason why we why upasana of shakti is given so much prominence is because the shakti tatva is something that is slightly easier to understand and experience for a person in this age the ishvara tatva is more different it is you require a lot of purity even before you can enter that state and if you don't have that purity you will end up into a lot of theoretical uh, speculations uh, okay this is this tatva is working yeah, this principle is working that philosophy is working that's one thing that is shakti tatva is something that is here even the even the conception of the uh, th- 36 um, elements that form the universe in the shaiva system of kashmir they basically mention that it is the shakti of shiva that comes down slowly slowly into the universe and forms everything that is there which means there is a presence of shakti right down in this plane the slightly more easier to experience and once you experience that it is that shakti that will keep guiding you that will rearrange the karmas that will make you walk talk sit whatever needs to be done till the time you attain to a state which is beyond the human condition and the moment you enter a state beyond the human condition samadhi and all that is definitely there but it's not necessary samadhi in the state that you close your eyes and you enter into a samadhi that's one state you may be in a state of samadhi even with your eyes open suppose your mind has been completely transcended in the not into a uh, a void kind of the both you know the both way where you enter into nirvana there nirvana is everything is a big shunya uh, sort of I'm, i'm not going to details of it but very loosely speaking here your mind is transformed completely and it becomes sort of the mind itself becomes like a mantra an alive mantra so whatever thoughts enter into your mind whatever actions you perform automatically there is a link and it becomes siddha it becomes self fulfilling it will have a tremendous actualizing power in itself and this cannot come until there is a blessing from the deity so this is the final aim of the process so that you transcend the human condition and you you understand what it feels to be like a god absolute absolute freedom which we cannot imagine even it's beyond the capacity of the human mind to imagine what that state is so this is the final aim of the tantric process you once explained in great detail what all stages does the english term liberation pack in itself but not enlightenment can you please do that if it's okay you know enlighten this is this question is not specific to the topic we have but very briefly enlightenment is different grades of very high order spiritual experience for example since we are on this uh, on the topic of tantra so when we look at the first five elements of the um, kashmiri shaivism that starts from the shuddha tattvas and uh, then you have the ishvara tattva and then beyond that you have sadashiva so the moment from the ele- from the layer of the shuddha tattvas you are already enlightened by the way you cannot enter into the realm of the shuddha tattva until you attain 
what is conventionally known as enlightenment. It's a very high state. Only thing is in Shuddha Tattva, you attain it through the power of the mantras. The mantras are living entities there. They have, they are like enlightened beings. Like imagine a mantra to be like a sage that pulls you there to that state and you've experienced that freedom. Only there's going to be slight shade in that freedom. So shade means, for example, as they explained to it, there is the concept of you're free, you experience what is known as the aham of Shiva, which is the ultimate sense of I, which is not your ego, but it is an I that creates the universe, that I you experience. But at the same time, you also experience the universe. So you, that aham is there, that idam is there, you are here and the world is also there. world has not vanished. Beyond that, you go into the Ishwara Tattva, where the sense of the world slightly recedes back a little bit. You realize that the world is there, but the world is your projection. Then you go to Sadashiva Tattva and then you see that the sense of aham becomes even stronger inside. And you believe that the world is there, but it is within me. The world is not outside of me. And then beyond that, you go to the Shiva and the Shakti Tattvas and the Anuttara Tattva. Those perhaps cannot be experienced through a human body. Those are Tattvas very, very high. The inexplicable. I mean, you can only have a mental theoretical formula understanding of it. But experiential understanding, perhaps you need to be nothing less than a Rishi to go to that state. I'm just guessing. So enlightenment is all of this. The moment you enter into the realm of Shuddha Tattva, you are enlightened. and as you keep going higher and higher, there are certain more subtle changes that will happen, certain changes in the caliber of the experience that will happen. So, in that sense, enlightenment is always a, you know, there is a, very broadly we use a threshold that, okay, after you cross this, then you reach enlightenment. No, beyond that also, there are gradations of enlightenment. Like, there is this typical, very nice example that I read in a book. Suppose there's a glass of water and there is a water in the ocean. Both of them are water. So both of them uh, have the feeling of uh, we are one with the Brahman, whatever way you look at it. So this is also water, that is also water. The water, water in an ocean can actually support an ecosystem. It can create a cyclone, it can create a storm, it can create various things. So the difference is that both of them are enlightenment, but one has higher caliber of Shakti available in that enlightenment. So like this, there are gradations. Does the Shakti Tantra have its origins in Shaivagam? And if so, how did it evolve into a self-sustained spiritual ecosystem? I think we addressed this point at the last year, uh, last uh, talk um, session I had. But basically, yeah, it not just the Shaiva Agamas, but it also had the Bhairava Agamas from which it evolved. Additionally, there was the Kola Tantra that evolved from uh, Eastern India, basically, uh, from around the temple of Kamakya. That's where the Kali, uh, Kalika Puran, etc. was written. And then uh, eventually there were texts and other things that came up specific tantric texts which uh, further formulated the path and sort of um, you know took uh, the upasana of shakti became prominent and the upasana of shiva uh, receded to the background in the path in these parts in the in the proper shakta tantras eventually which is the one tantric text that you would highly recommend as a serious practitioner reading thoroughly to enhance their body of knowledge these days most english literary sadhaks get introduced to tantra through robert Swoboda's books but is there any other source? That's a difficult question, actually. Yeah, most people start with the Agora series of books by Dr. Saboda. And then there are, uh, you know, some of the preliminary texts that were translated by uh, Arthur Avalon. Those are also decent. But see, if you're a practitioner, if you're into the path, then you have to read the tantras that are given prominence in your sampradaya. 
and you have to understand them not just read them like reading any any texts you have to do your practice you have to read them again do your practice again read them so that way your understanding of the path will become a little bit broader uh, but by and large there are most of the literature that i have found till date is mostly either they uh, you know sort of hyperbolize the practices and make it look uh, something very esoteric like uh, another harry potter series going on things like that or on the other end of the spectrum they'll make it extremely technical so technical that somebody who's outside of the system will not make sense of it i cannot recommend any specific book because i haven't found anything that Uh, sort of you know covers the middle ground properly um about the aghora books they are very good to read but they are only books good to read if you are at the i believe personally that if you are at the very preliminary stage of sadhana once you go enter into the field of sadhana there are uh, actually in fact yes there are books which are quite good but they are not in english they are in local languages i mean i know quite a few very very good books in bengali there are books uh, very good books i'm sure in other indian languages as well that speak of uh, tantric uh, methods of sadhana etc uh, or at least the biographies of actual saints or saintly siddhas who have walked this path so when you read those biographies sometimes you may find some clue to how your sadhana is working or if there is any conversational text between you know somebody and a high caliber expert so i know in bengali there are few but english i don't think uh, i've come across anything uh, like that it's either too to academic kind of scholarly text written or the other end of the spectrum is to harry potter kind of miraculous text uh, written it's uh, miracles are a part of tantra part of any upasana for that matter not just tantra and what is miracle the moment there is a change inside you will see things happening in a way which is difficult to explain in the normal uh, rationality and logic so that's what it is so uh, i i don't think i can effectively answer any question but the best option is if you have to progress in the path then start your sadhana and then find out the tantric texts that are pertaining to the to the sampradaya that you are uh, you know connected to and the deity that you are worshiping and read those texts and not once read them multiple times initial times when you read them you will not even figure out it will seem like just a, you know like a like a document of a very technical document okay this is a mantra should do it this number of times this is the mandala etc etc but as your mind becomes more subtle to the power of the mantra you will find inside those writings also there are fantastic uh, clues mentioned clues uh, certain hints and clues etc which can make your practice even stronger that is only if you are in the path of sadhana if you are not in the sadhana then just reading a tantric text is meaningless actually you Uh, perhaps not even figure out many of the injunctions mentioned there because it's not only about knowing the language there are certain areas where uh the language is even mentioned as slightly coded language so that it, the non initiates cannot understand them so there was uh, there's one uh, upasana of kali where it is mentioned that um, you know if you do not worship without adya shakti then it is equivalent to abhichara there is a half shloka in one of the vasanas of kali that is mentioned so people if you just read it you will think that okay i have to worship adya shakti and then you have to worship kali but adya shakti here is a term that specifically mentions uh, specifically means that you have to do this upasana along with your partner along with your wife then only it will work but instead of that they use the term adya shakti so here again behind that also there is one comma how does 
why exactly is the wife called an other? Because tantric upasana, both husband and wife can do this together. It's much like the uh, original Vedic uh, systems where, you know, if you have to sit for a Vedic yoga, you need to get married. Only then you are allowed to sit for certain yogas and things like that. Same way in the tantric systems, there are certain upasanas where both husband and wife can participate. So like this, there are uh, different places where certain co-language that is used is not exactly uh, the sense that will come out if you just read it like that. So that is why that is the importance of the sampradaya also. What are the uh, nimits and how does one know the authenticity of a nimit? Is reliance on nimit indispensable on tantra, in tantra sadhana? Uh, reliance on nimittas is indispensable in all sadhanas, not just tantra sadhana, but only when there is a uh, when the practice has started creating some changes inside. If that change has not happened, right from day one, if people start looking at nimittas, they are bound to make mistake. So because every at any given moment, there is something or the other always happening. So if you start finding logic and meaning behind that, then you will end up completely confused and not sure and your mind will get weaker and weaker. But it is when you have attained to a certain proficiency, a certain, to a certain depth in the sadhana, that uh, that is when if there is a certain nimitta that comes, you will be able to correctly interpret it. And how do you know it is working? Uh, whether the interpretation is correct. So you interpret something that, okay, you saw this nimitta, that means XYZ result should come. If the result has come, you know that the nimitta was correct. And if that happens, say, you take 10 examples and you see that 7 out of 10 times it happens, that means your interpretation of the nimitta is working correctly. If on the other hand, you see that 7 out of 10 times it is not working, that means that it's more of fluke in your mind. So nimitta will work only when the sadhana that you're doing is actually working inside you properly, it has taken you to a slightly higher state, that is when you can interpret it properly. And uh, as I said, it's not just Tantric Upasana, every Upasana Nimitta is very important. Nimitta, in fact, the deity sends a Nimitta, the mantra creates the Nimitta, etc. Various things are there. We often come across stories that in certain Kshetras, certain Siddha Purushas have scaled down the Shakti of the deity. For instance, Bamakhepa and Tarapit, what does this signify? Uh, so, Bamakhepa and Tarapet is, I won't call it scaling down, perhaps it is a little bit of scaling down only. Uh, that is because it's, it just signifies that the original force of the deity was perhaps too strong for people of uh, this age to be able to absorb that kind of power. And uh, when it comes specifically to Tarapet, it's believed not Bamakhepa exactly, it is Vashishta who scaled down the power of Ugrutara. Uh, and he did it by making a slight change in the mantra of Tara, slight change in the Vija. So there is an older mantra of Tara that is found in texts, which um, by and large, the consensus is that it does not lead to Siddhi if somebody is doing that mantra. So there is a change that has to be brought into that mantra. And this mantra, mantric change was performed by Vashishta while doing Upasana of Tara at Tarapit. In order that, um, why did he do it? That is, the story at least says that once he had a vision of the goddess, he realized that most people are incapable of worshipping uh, the deity because she is so ferocious. So in order that uh, the energy of the deity is slightly more, uh, slightly toned down, say, you know, slightly takes a form that's slightly easier for people to access. So that is why he requested the deity to change into something that is little less uh, fierce. I mean, even then, Nugratara is very fierce. And in Tarapit, it's the deity of the cremation ground. So she definitely is fierce, there's no doubt. But there was still that slight amount of change, which allowed a lot of people to actually progress in the Tara Upasana. 
and attain to very high perfection. And this is encoded in the change in the mantra of the Tara Mahavitya. Slight amount of change. I mean, all, all major tantric texts mention this incident. And they mentioned that the mantra was changed so that it's easier for people to access. Uh, having said that, there are many other examples in South and other temples specifically where we find that Sri Yantra has been installed and the deity has been, its power has been reduced, etc. I have mixed views on this. Uh, that is possible, but perhaps in some instances, uh, I just my personal view, it's, it would have been better if the original power of the deity was kept as it is. So sometimes we need, we need the, it's like this. The Shakta Upasana has to cover the full range. There has to be the softest and the most somya form of the deity. And we also have to have options for the most aggressive form of the deity. The full range must be covered. And only one who can do all of that is the greatest of the, the greatest of the kolas. The Mahakola is the greatest who is like Shiva himself who becomes. Sir, if you could please tell why a sadhak does jap samarpan in the right hand of the male deity and in the left hand for the female deity. So that is because main, mainly because uh, so uh, the path of Shakti is considered to be the left hand path. So in if if you look at the progression of the um, sadhana, the progression of the achara, the various modes of tantric sadhana, you have dakshinachara. Dakshinachara sadhana is basically uh, still following the right the the conventionally accepted way. It's like you are going in the clockwise direction, the the way the world moves. You are doing sadhana in that and you are progressing in that. Dakshinachara also will lead to progress. And then you go into the Vamachara, which is just the anti-clockwise, the reverse direction. The Vamachara or the reverse direction is where uh, you will have the beginning of what is known as the Panchamakara and the other things that come into play in this sadhana upasana. That is the path basically where Shakta upasana is very important. Where That is the path of Shakti, which is not this conventional way. It's like you know, to put it otherwise, it's the anti-clockwise way of attaining perfection in the same sadhana. So, by and large, the conception is perhaps it has got something to do with our human psychology. So, when we give it to the left hand of the deity, the other thing is that that which is um, done to the left hand, uh, that which is given to the left hand of the deity is, in fact, you will see that the mantra specifically asks the deity when giving it to the left hand is that you have to keep it hidden. The more you keep it hidden, the more it germinates into something more powerful. Whereas the conventional sadhanas, when we give it to the right hand, there are multiple mantras for offering to the right hand. In fact, not in some sampradayas, which are uh, sort of non-mainstream sampradayas, sabar sampradayas and others, they give it to the guru instead of the right hand of the instead of the you know male deity, they offer it to the guru. So that which is uh, given to the right hand is basically sort of to look at it that one way is that you are uh, doing the samarpana to in the conventional way to the conventional deity so so when you are worshiping sort of a male deity say if you are worshiping shiva there are certain conventional ways in sadhana of sadhana you are doing but the moment you are doing it in the non conventional way the Let's put in the Vamachara method, the anti-clockwise way, etc. There, it is important that the process remains a little bit hidden so that it gets certain power inside it and gives you the power. So when you are giving it to the deity, when you are giving it to her, to, to your Ishta Devi after the sadhana, you are actually asking her that to keep it hidden. Keep it hidden so that it gives me Siddhi. This is the term that is used in the 
samarpana of the mantra so i am assuming that is the reason why because the female because the feminine force uh, what is called shakti has a link to the left hand side both psychologically and physically whereas the masculine force has a link to the right hand side so this is perhaps the reason why when we are doing an upasana of a, of a form of shakti we always give it to we give the mantra to her left hand and ask her to keep it hidden until we attain siddhi what are the key differences in deities and their upasana residing in similar places for example shamshan tara shamshan kali and mahakal okay so this is uh, uh, i can only these are these are questions which have no clear direct answers so you will not like it's not like you know a text says that uh, this is how it is i can only tell you the way i look at it how i understand this so very simply put when you worship bhairava not just smashan bhairava bhairava is a form when you go higher the form of shiva Uh, when you go deeper into upasana of bhairava he has a strong connection to the cremation ground that much is certain and all elements that live there but bhairava is the purusha tattva that is inside the cremation ground that which is purusha tattva is what even in normal sadhana that which is a little bit more detached that which is the witness of things that is less the actor of things that is seeing things and not really acting on things that is the basic nature of the purusha tattva so bhairava's nature is also somewhat like this though bhairava is also active if you are Uh, specifically invoking him for certain sadhanas and things like that but in on principle bhairava is that which provides the steadiness in the cremation ground so any upasana in cremation ground whatever deity you have to worship bhairava in the process whatever may be the being deity mahakali or smashan kali is basically it's the whole sum total of the whole energy that is there in the cremation ground the complete absolute absolute power that is there full and that means both the higher kinds of power as well as the lower kinds of entities things that are bound in the cremation grounds like spirits and uh, various other beings who cannot leave the area of the cremation ground to stay there or any other kind of uh, you know entity there if you add everything together the energy that you get and personify that that is kali she is she is always absolute that is her nature she is no there are no half measures with her either full scale or there is she will not be there whereas tara on the other hand is like analogous to in the cremation ground if you just enter into the cremation ground at night if there is no light it's absolute darkness you don't know whether you're going left whether you're going right what are you doing kahan pe baith rahe ho and it's a kind of an unnerving experience in that circumstance and today you have torch lights and all that perhaps centuries ago you had nothing of that sort so the only how do you actually navigate your way inside the cremation ground how do you know where you have to sit what you have to do because there is no light and most of these rituals are done at night so there is not even uh, and not only night some of them are done specifically on new moon nights amavasya when there is not even a moon there so that is when the light that comes out from the pyre that is burning is going to act as a guide for you this is the physical reality of a cremation ground so that light which guides you inside the cremation ground that is tara that is the cremation ground tara she is the one who will tell you with her blessings those who have that blessings and those rare great souls who have blessings of tara in the cremation room will perform the ritual to absolute perfection koi galti hoga hi because she is the one who is like a guru and she can act as a guru among the bhavidas she is the one who can act as a guru in any circumstance be it inside a cremation ground or inside your house or inside any place once she decides to take uh, pasaka under her fold 
so she knows how to do what to do how much to do what results will come etc so these are sort of if you look at an analogy this is how these three deities operate inside the realm of the commission rajeshri sir is initiation required for reciting the ashtotra uh, shatnama or sahasranama of any of the mahavidyas particularly bhagavati kali tara sundari and bhuvaneshwari no but uh, it's good to actually before you start of an aggressive form it's good to actually take advice from somebody that whether it's suitable for you i mean just don't randomly jump i mean uh, and there can be no thumb rule about this because obviously it depends on individual to individual by and large for reading the reciting the ashtottara nama you don't need an initiation i mean it's just the names names can be chanted by anybody but mind you do not add mantras to it some people do the ashtottara by adding samputikarana of uh, vija mantras before after etc all that all that you cannot do you can just chant the names but even then it is best to actually take advice from somebody that if you are doing kali or some of the aggressive forms uh, that whether it's suitable for you or not like that you don't need initiation just some advice is fine with regards to mantra sadhana if you have completed a full mantra purush charana and you have not attained siddhi what remedies are there no there are no remedies if you have attained mantra purush charana and not attained siddhi which is perhaps the most likely scenario in 99.9% cases that means you have to do more purush charana in fact the tantric texts mention this clearly that uh, in kali yuga in fact as kali yuga becomes more advanced the amount of corruption that is going to be there is so heavy that doing one purush charana is not enough you have to do four purush charanas for each mantra which means if a specific say Uh, the shiva panchakshari requires 5 lakh japa so you have to do 20 lakhs four times that and each time you have to do it with following all the rules which means you start with the sankalpa you do this amount of japa uh, you do homas of it you do tarpana you do marjana you do you feed people bhojana etc then again the tantric texts tell you that uh, do purusharana in different places so first purusharana you did say 1 lakh you did at home next one lakh you go to some kshetra of shiva and you sit there for 10 days 10 days nahi actually for a mantra like panchakshari mantra a decent caliber sadhak should be able to finish one lakh japa in 5 to 6 days if you have nothing else to do that is uh, i'm saying so you take a you know you take few days off you go to a say you go to kashi or you go to ujjain or any other powerful shiva temple and you stay close by and you do the mantra purusharana there then after that you have a guru then you can go and ask the guru if there's an ashram your guru has an ashram you want to stay in the ashram and do the purusharana in front of your guru or next purusharana you may actually do it in a you know where there in a cow shed goshala certain purusharanas work very well in certain places so like this it didn't work in one shot that is because the amount of corruption that is there today is highly unlikely that anybody's purusharana in one shot will work i mean the only only i remember personally once uh, in one instance uh, i did get a very good result in purusharana that's because uh, my guru had specifically given me a mantra and i remember the day i completed that mantra uh, the japa of that mantra i had a uh, very peculiar and fantastic experience of the deity quite out of the blue i was, was not expecting that and that experience had stayed with me for a long time but that was because before starting the purushan the my guru had specifically instructed that uh, specific sadhana for me it was not even a general general and generic sadhana for everybody by by and large 
one purush charna is unlikely to give you effects so you'll have to keep doing more at least 3 to 4 purush charna minimum it require it's required in this age does the result of sadhana change according to gradation of diksha like the sadhak with the mantra updesh of mantra get the same result as a sadhak with the abhishek diksha of the same mantra uh definitely that see this is the uh before that in one of the interesting things that you will if you if you study this text more you will see that um when it comes to shakti upasana when you are worshiping a form of the goddess and specifically when you are worshiping a mahavidya then abhishek diksha is considered as mandatory i mean if you have to go higher whereas if you worship uh uh whether you worship in the form of you know bhakti mode of a to a deity or whether you worship in a male deity whether you worship in shiva or whether you worship in vishnu or ganapati or surya etc abhishek is not mandatory you do not need to have mantra abhishek you can have any kind of diksha you can have even a mantra upadesham and start off that may work but when it comes to shakti worship of shakti and specifically the mahavidyas and the siddha vidyas either the mahavidya or the siddha vidya those are higher order shaktis it is mentioned as mandatory to have a shakta abhishek diksha and then go by this krama why that is because only when you do this uh, if the diksha is properly done it rearranges your karmas to some degree it's like you're you know you are uh, entering into the path but it's a uh, sort of uh, so to give an analogy for example when you're doing mantra japa you don't have a abhishek diksha and you are doing mantra japa so you start off in your vehicle you are going to a certain destination and after some time uh, you spend your own money and you take some amount of uh, fuel into the car and vehicle and you start going so you there is some amount of uh, expenditure from your part that is going on given the road is very long you may not suppose and you you do not have too much money on you so there is only so much so much of um fuel etc you can take in and you know keep going whereas an abhishek diksha is something like the guru actually fills the car's petrol tank to half and then says that okay you baki rest you put in i have already given you half the fuel and you start off if the abhishek diksha is correctly done it kind of rearranges the karmas to some degree number point number 2 is because shakti mantras work very fast and that is there is a good reason why the though initially the tantric systems had all like there is a there is a tantra for vaishnava deities also there are mantras of krishna and rama and every every vaishnava deity shaiva deities of course are there but it is eventually what happened is it is only the shakta tantras that became most prominent and most popular among all deities but the that is because uh, the tantric upasana approach towards shakti works incredibly fast there is definitely going to be results Uh, if you have the right uh, mindset and you choose you are given the right diksha and the right uh, process to do in the tantric uh, within the tantric circle you know um, scheme of things etc so in order that what happens is if you attain shakti too fast your mind and body is not pure enough to hold that shakti it is 10 times easier to lose that shakti by making some mistake uh, whether consciously or unconsciously so having an abhishek diksha also helps you stall the process of losing shakti while it is not a guarantee at all i mean i have seen way too many people by now who are very high order abhishek diksha spoon abhishek and all but it's still to be very honest the amount of shakti they possess is very minor that's because um, 
as it is everything has become corrupted to some degree so it's easier to get the dikshas once you know uh, once you enter into the circle you will find people you start taking a diksha after a few years you'll get another one but that does not really reflect in the kind of shakti that is there in the upasana so eventually what happens is their sort of life gets into a bit of a point is if you have a purnavishay diksha you are good enough to actually solve just about any problem to be very honest if you if it's in the ideal condition but that ideal condition is not there anymore because people really do not spend working on the basics of sadhana to be honest and that's one of the things that i've observed way too often but even then also it is important to have the abhishek diksha because abhishek diksha gives you a kind of a little bit of boost in shakti upasana and it helps you to stall the leakage of shakti that will happen once you start attaining shakti attaining shakti is very easy keeping holding on to that shakti 10 times more difficult applying that shakti 100 times more difficult because applying that shakti problem is you have to know where to apply how much to apply how much not to apply there if you make a mistake you will get a 10 times uh, 10 times accelerated karmic reaction and that karmic reaction is going to make you fall down right from wherever you might be to a condition which is far worse than when you even started this out but all shakti all upasana of shakti is basically broadly broken into three parts where you generate the shakti where you integrate the shakti into your mind and body and third when you are able to apply it into the outside world whether for your benefit whether for somebody else whether for general uplift of dharma whatever it is and tantras give you that liberty it is tantra is not at all saying that you should 100% have to be nishkam and you know you cannot ask for anything not at all there are tantras that give you that these processes are there and why just tantras even the even a hanuman chalisa if you read you will have a philosophy at the end with what results it can produce so as long as tantra is a way of maximizing upasana rest whether an application is right or wrong that is up to your uh, ethical judgment if you do a wrong application accordingly you will face a reaction that much is certain so in that sense the abhishek diksha actually is very important because it ensures that you do not lose shakti easily it ensures that your karmic balance is slightly rearranged so that your thinking process is uplifted all, all these things that is uh, if the abhishek diksha is done properly and also it gives you a boost in your sadhana but by only abhishek one sec only abhishek is not enough by the way i mean there are a lot of people with abhishek diksha and still haven't attained anything you will have to still do a lot of hard work hard work following the rules following the processes that are set in place then you have a scope that perhaps you can succeed genuinely succeed and you can experience the high states that are mentioned in the texts and which uh, previous uh, you know great upasakas earlier have attained to you mentioned that shakti cannot be learned without a guru's initiation and a guidance a guru will clearly not accept a disciple merely on the basis of curiosity in fact that may even be considered irrelevant so what would be the minimum qualification by which a guru might consider a disciple so oh, that is for the guru to judge that is the that's because minimum qualification uh a desire for the path you don't just end to tantra it's not like you know one fine day i'm walking down the street and tomorrow suddenly i take a diksha asani you have a understanding that what you are getting into so this is the path this is the deity you you have an attraction for a mahavidya upasana then you have to enter into tantra there is no other way to worship mahavidyas properly this is the whole the 10 mahavidyas are within the field of tantra okay it's there's no 
other way. So the guru decides based on various factors. For example, whether the person has genuine interest in that, whether the person is capable of doing sadhana at all. Uh, in earlier uh, ages, in earlier times, they would even give you a give the disciple a first a mantra upadesha and say that you just chant this for some time, maybe six months to a year or something or two years. Uh, in fact, there is one sampradaya, not very highly revered sampradaya, one of the best. I, I consider them one of the best. They may uh, they may wait, make a person wait for three to four years before giving diksha. They will give you some mantra and they will tell you that keep chanting it. And once you keep chanting it, you come and meet the guru every six months or a year or something like that. And they will see whether what progress you are making. And only when you have made certain degree of progress, then only they will give you the Abhishekha Diksha. And until the Abhishekha Diksha comes in, you cannot perform the Tantric Karmakanda. That is the next stage of sadhana that comes in. On the other hand, there are many sampradayas, as it happens in this age, uh, they perhaps won't even check anything. If you are interested, they will just give you the Abhishekha Diksha straight away. And they will give you some basic theoretical idea and some very high level you know, fundas, like you worship the goddess, so you become very high. And things like that. Those are all upar upar ka funda hai. But eventually they will give you the diksha. But in my opinion, the test, I mean, uh, I'm not a guru or anything, but if I were a guru, the first test is that give a simple mantra. Allow them one, two years of time to practice that mantra. And you will know what signs are there. Anybody who has done sadhana will understand, will have a clear, definite understanding of what are the signs of progress in mantra sadhana. If that individual is able to carry even that simple mantra to some degree of proficiency, then only comes the next stage of Abhishek Adiksha and things like that. But unfortunately, today, as it, you know, I believe in all dharmic systems, not just in tantra, I see there is a certain degree of, uh, of fall, a certain degree of corruption, not corruption in the sense of monetary corruption, but corruption in the sense that lowering of the standards have happened by and large in every yeah. Uh, every aspect of dharma and that is also because the quality of people perhaps who are interested in these things are not that high caliber as it used to be in an earlier era. So all taken together, getting an Abhishek Diksha is not too difficult practically today. But on the other hand, uh, the guru needs to judge if the person is capable of carrying on sadhana, if the person is genuinely interested in that field. It is just, uh, you know, somebody who is merely curious going. I mean, speaking of... Uh, I, Somebody asked a question about the Kinaram Sampradaya, right? Uh, once I had seen this uh, a couple of years ago, I had gone to Kamakya and I was staying for a few, about 10, 10, 15 days. I was there. Right next to where I was staying, there were four uh, people from the Kinaram Ashram, four gurus who had come. And the, the oldest, uh, the senior most guru was almost 90 years old. There was somebody who was about a little, little younger. And then, then there was somebody who was younger than that. So they were all disciples, each one disciple. And uh, the young three gurus were there. They were all Indians. The third one was perhaps in his 40s. And then there were two other, two young people who had come. So they were keen on taking initiation into certain kind of upasana related to the goddess. So they had brought those people those three gurus and that two uh, novices, they had brought them to Kamakya to give them an initiation into certain tantric practices. Now, what I observed very interestingly, I used to stay in one room, they used to stay, it was a very small you know, arrangement there because a lot of people come during Ambuvachi uh, in Kamakya in that time, like almost lakhs of people. It was you know, 
they were staying right in the room next to me and the two novices were staying together in another room so i what the interesting thing that i found was that uh, the senior most gurus the second order and the third order gurus would not speak directly to the novices it's only their immediate guru who would speak to them so one day i observed they were like sleeping at night i think suddenly the guru just was just immediate to them comes knocks on their room and wakes them up and uh, gives them full bucket full of clothes and says that now it is night go and wash them and come everybody's clothes okay in between their eating suddenly they'll say now go do this do that so whole point was if you look at it from outside it's as if there is some sort of a torture regime that was going on to them uh, i was on the other hand speaking to that senior most guru because um, he was uh, sitting somewhere one day and i just went up and we were just discussing things like that and he was telling that uh, generally that you know when you enter this path the first the way uh, that sampradaya is to function and some of the older sampradaya still perhaps function this way they're not keen on taking people so they'll put in 100 hurdles on your way tell you why you should not enter this path they'll make you do all sorts of stuff uh, till the time your obedience to the guru is perfected at any given point you feel that no i cannot do this i am not meant to do all these things jhadu pocha business before even a mantra is given to you they'll say now please get out so the idea is it's a process of filtering it's a process of filtering and they make them do this they will also give them some mantra and they'll ask them to keep chanting for months or maybe even years it depends i don't know what is the duration of the it depends on the guru until they're very sanguine that okay after you have passed through all that that means you are 100% serious about the path then only they will go into the higher levels of diksha so like this but uh, Uh, many other sampradaya students do not follow anything like that if you are interested in you go and speak to the guru and they maybe one or two meetings and they'll be good so that also happens how does one start looking for a guru see generally if you are looking for a guru that is a very broad topic again i'm saying specifically if you're looking for a uh, tantrik upasana or generally maybe even for a general guru also you don't wait for the guru start some sadhana that is uh, that is allowed to be done without a diksha And so don't go into direct uh, you know vija mantras and things like that but maybe ashtapthara namas or stuff or maybe just take an upadesha from a senior upasaka so upadesha mantra upadesha all can also be taken from people who are senior upasakas who may not be gurus there is the concept of the uttara sadaka in tantras which are uh, an upasaka who is of a high caliber who is not a guru but he can guide others so you take some advice from them you start doing some uh, chanting and some sadhana at least for you know 6 months to a year or something like that and then meanwhile keep looking it's not don't it's uh, it's not something that you will find it on day one keep looking and perhaps you'll find somebody who suits your conception of what a guru must be and who can guide you and who has see here's the other thing it's very important we blindly believe anybody who claims to be a guru i personally feel that you must always test your guru really well. there is absolutely no harm in testing a guru in fact one of the tantras mentions this uh, that if your guru is incapable he, if he is not um, so guru has to know the shastras guru has to have the there are lakshanas of a guru uh, he must have attained to success attained to siddhi of the process and that will be reflected in way he walks and talks he don't have uh, he may not have to beat his own drum it will be visible if you if you interact with a person who has attained siddhi for higher level siddhi and not lower level siddhi i'm talking about lower means 
some siddhi or spirits and all that all that nonsense but i'm saying higher level siddhi if somebody has attained and you interact with the person for some period of time don't be in a hurry spend few months meet that person see etc etc you'll get a clear understanding that there is something about the individual which may be not you know normal which is a reflection of the process of the sadhana that he or she has gone through and number 2 it is important that the guru should respect the shastras why because shastras are binding on everybody if you violate from the what i have seen is the moment you step outside of the bounds of the shastras if not today some day or the other that specific act is going to come back and cause problems to you that is why the shastras are so exceptional because they are far they have far sight encoded into it the people who composed the shastras the revelations that were given they can see up to a distance which you i even the best upasaka cannot see that is why the shastras are so very important because they may see that if you make some change here uh, decades later some problem is going to come like that you cannot see that foresee that however good you might be so that is the reason why almost all genuine sampradayas try to follow the basic fundamentals that have been given by the shastras you cannot invent a new path you have to go through the path that is given in between there are certain leeways that are allowed but for that the guru is has to be competent enough and he must have attained to a certain degree of proficiency so before search, searching for a guru first is start doing some upasana on your own at least and be in no hurry i mean it's not like one day you'll find just tomorrow or day after you can find to spend 6 months to a year actually perfecting your sadhana to some degree so that the process you do brings the guru into your life how does one know that the mantra is working and do we need to uh, chant the mantra fast or slowly uh, the mantra is working as i said first of all you will see that there is a you will look forward to the japa of the mantra first thing number 2 is that there can be various experiences that relate to the mantra some of them will be internal experiences uh, as feeling of bliss for example a feeling of oneness with the mantra uh, a definite a certain kind of depth in your meditation on the mantra but when you are doing mantra sadhana japa it is like the height of mantra sadhana is meditation on the mantra the mantra becomes your mind becomes filled with the mantra and there is nothing else there that state if you attain that means that your mantra is going very well your body and mind is you know what you call it gelling with the mantra properly plus at the same time you will find reactions that will happen around you that is definite if the mantra is working there are physical you know changes around you uh, depending on the deity whom you are invoking you will see certain uh, you know practical differences around you small signs of the deity that will come but more importantly the two even uh, when i say signs you have to also be careful because um, careful in the sense that unless you are developed to a certain degree you will misinterpret signs our mind gets too eager to believe that some magic is happening outside and that is why we very easily misinterpret very normal occurrences that is problematic you have to that uh, only when you have attained to a higher state that you will rightly know that this is the sign that is happening is correctly linked to the sadhana that you do and because these are so complicated things this correct judgment that is why the importance of guru is there if you yourself are going to make the decision it is very likely that you will make mistakes regarding signs outside it depends on the caliber of the sadhana you are doing so there are certain mantras of deities which if you certain caliber of mantras uh, mantra sadhana if you do properly there will be certain animals who may come to you for example there are in certain uh, very very high order sadhanas and not this is not for simple 
starters and beginners and all that even even in the tantric scheme of things it is at a higher order of shakti when that is there if you do those sadhanas there are certain snakes may come to an individual who is doing that sadhana they will not harm the individual they'll come to the area where the sadhana is happening they may even move around in that area there will be not one trace of fear in that sadhana because the amount the moment there is a trace of fear immediately it will spoil the whole sadhana but that is taken as an indication that the mantra has activated to a higher level then there are stages of tantric sadhana where uh, which those sadhanas cannot be done at home though suppose you are doing that sadhana in a in a secluded setting in a forest or something uh, foxes and jackals and things like that they will come and there are specific we call bhog specific bali's food items you know, those have to be kept separate for them and if they come and accept that uh, offering that you have and it is an indication that it is so what exact it is an indication of the success of the process but what exactly does it mean by an animal coming it is the the shakti of the mantra works in a subtle way it is not something physically visible so what it does is it creates the deity the deity takes possession of the animal and comes to you because the deity may not directly appear in front of you your nervous system does not have the capacity to take that in the full power of the deity so it possesses an animal that is suitable vehicle of that mantra shakti that animal comes to you accepts something from you the way that animal behaves with you and the way you behave with that animal will indicate what kind of um what state you are in in the upasana etc so this is i'm talking very high advanced stage it happens but these things happen so there will be signs outside there will be signs inside you also this this thing that i described these uh, animals coming snakes coming this cannot happen until you also have attained to a significant degree of advaita bhava with the mantra you have to have oneness with the mantra and that is not that simple it's like you keep chanting chanting and then the mantra goes very deep within then you will realize that but all these are starts off at that point that you know once you start a practice how much do you look forward to doing it are you doing it as a punishment or are you doing it because you really love doing it when that feeling of love that attraction for the process comes in then you know that the whatever sadhana you are doing whatever mantra you are chanting is working for you this is the first step can rashi ji uh, there's a lot of confusion about uh, doing jap you know of the mantra very fast or slowly something like that okay fast is uh, slowly is better but slowly is not slowly will not happen on day one slowly happens when you develop into a certain higher condition and then uh, the mantra itself will take you into a meditative state and automatically your the pace of mantra japa will reduce in the initial stages just do it at the at a normal pace no need to do too fast no need to do too slow but important to do is finish the counts that is very important like you have to do one mala then one mala only you finish it no no giving up in the middle like i did half and then suddenly felt like now i have to go no not like that do it in a disciplined manner that the amount that you are set to do every day or if you are doing a mantra purusharana mantra anushtham this much has to be done so this much has to be done it will inculcate a certain discipline in the mind that is very very useful as you go higher in sadhana 